This is HPR Talk, the official podcast of the Harvard Political Review and your behind-the-scenes look at America's premier undergraduate political quarterly since 1969. I'm James Blanchfield, Senior Multimedia Editor at the HPR. In this episode, we delve into our summer 2018 magazine, The Experience Economy. I sat down with writers to discuss topics ranging from small businesses in Mexico to the Flint water crisis. To start off, I sat down with HBR staff member Connor Schoen to discuss his article titled Fighting for the Small Guy, The Challenges Facing Mexico's Tienditas. Hi, Connor. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, James. Yeah. Uh, so to start off, can you just give me a quick summary of your article? Yeah. So this article was inspired by some work I was doing um, with the Center for Latin American Studies. There's this company called Sinoli. They're a really cool organization based in Mexico City who works through issues that microbusinesses have in the city trying to compete with retail giants like Walmart, 7-Eleven, um, this regional supermarket called Oxo. I was inspired to do some research, do some interviews as to what was creating issues for these companies and also what types of solutions could be explored Um as they are dying at a really rapid rate throughout the country. So once I stumbled upon this issue of um, micro-business supply chain and efficiency in the country of Mexico, um, I kind of got hooked looking into what resources are available to help these businesses survive, what potential paths forward can exist to help these traditional retail businesses go um, into the more uh, modern commercial sphere and what obstacles are the largest barriers from them to reaching this success. So the basis of the topic that I ended up exploring was, um, was again, obstacles to success for micro-businesses, mom-and-pop stores, really small stores, um, little supermarkets throughout Mexico City who, uh, you know, are the primary source of revenue for uh, many families across the city. There's about a million of them across the country. That's a million families. Um, what's stopping those businesses from being successful? What's causing them to be dying at a rate of five stores for every one Walmart that opens, 40 stores an hour, gone in an instant? What's causing this? So that was the premise of my topic. And then I dive, dove deeper into the causes and then eventually especially if the interviews evaluated potential routes forward. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah, um, one of the things that really surprised me about your article was just the rapidness that these small businesses are, are closing and then larger stores are opening. And uh, that's kind of suggested to me that the transition has happened recently and somewhat suddenly. So from your, your research for this article, how long has this economic transition been going on? And why do you think there's been this delay relative to much of the rest of the world? Yeah, so the the second piece you're saying there, the delay in relationship to the rest of the world is really key. So I talked with um, a former business executive in Mexico who said that, um, you know, they had lived in Mexico in the United States and they saw this process happen way earlier, like in their childhood in the United States, mm-hmm. way back um, mid to late 20th century versus Mexico where it's happening now. So part of the reason for that delay is Mexico's emerging economy. Um, it's an emerging market. So it's slightly behind in terms of economic development, economic growth in comparison to the United States. 
um, through policies, trade policies like NAFTA, through um, other open forms of globalization, Mexico has been able to gain access to more modern forms of business in the retail sector and more broadly. So they're starting to face the issue of having Walmart come in, who's an established multinational conglomerate based in the United States, who has no issue with supply chain management, who has one of the most efficient supply chain processes in the entire world, especially in retail, who can come in and set up stores like nothing that are huge at scale. They have huge purchasing power because of the quantity of items that they're buying. Um, and they have just decades of processes and procedures and a developed workforce that can greatly leverage um, a wealth of global power over these smaller stores. So now as because of NAFTA and because of other agreements, Walmart's able to come in, 7-Eleven's able to come in. These traditional micro businesses that were really the heart and soul of the Mexican economy are simply dwarfed by these mega giants who have global support, um, access to incredible resources, access to incredible procedures and technologies that the micro businesses just simply don't have. So as these as these companies come in as kind of an exogenous shock to the local economies, the micro businesses are struggling to keep pace in their modernization because they don't have the access to the same resources and scale that companies like Walmart and Seven Eleven and Offset have. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the big disadvantages of the micro businesses that you mentioned in your articles just their lack of bargaining power um, and. Do you think that these businesses will be able to unite to improve their bargaining power through a company like Tenoli, or is there a sense of individuality that comes with owning a small business in Mexico? Yeah, so I don't think those two things are contradictory. Mm-hmm. So Tenoli acts as what we call in the United States a collective purchasing organization, or CPO. Yeah. And in doing that, Tenoli is able to create efficiency at scale and lower unit prices at scale by buying in bulk for a network of 3,000 micro-businesses. Now, Tenoli is a middleman between the food providers and the micro-businesses, the retail side. Um, They're working to get the best wholesale prices possible for these companies. They're working to get the, on the distribution side, which I can talk about more later, they're working to create the most efficient supply chain from the wholesale providers to the retail businesses. So there isn't, There isn't a, I don't believe there's a conflict between the business's individuality and Tonoli, because whereas Tonoli is creating kind of this unionized effort around um, collectivizing wholesale bargaining power, collectivizing supply chain management, they're not depriving each of the individual businesses of their independent incorporation, their independent branding, development, etc. They work directly with the uh, businesses, with their on the ground team. Um, which is a team of about, I think it's about a third of their company that goes around, uh, talks directly with the businesses. Um, they, they go with a catalog every week of the products for the week, work with the businesses in terms of what they want. They're really just a middleman service provider. They're not actually buying the businesses, owning the businesses. They're providing consultancy. They're providing supply chain management, and they're providing wholesale bargaining power. Um, at scale. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. 
Um, so leading on, uh, the, the more, the most fascinating part of your article to me was the difference between the American entrepreneurs and the Mexican entrepreneurs. And you're sort of mm-hmm. saying how the former would start business based on opportunity or innovation and the latter, you know, start a business out of just necessity. Um, and I typically think of starting a business as like a difficult thing to do financially. Like what factors allow for these sort of down their luck Mexican entrepreneurs to start businesses after losing their other jobs? Yeah. So to give more context on that piece, I talked with um, students at the School of Supply Chain Management at MIT. It's a graduate program there that actually has a specific micro masters um, for students who are interested in studying micro business supply chain issues and they uh the, the two students i talked with there rafael and Jimena, who i cite in the article talked about how um just a picture of an entrepreneur in the united states and mexico and latin america more broadly is just so different so um i believe the quote from the article is that while an entrepreneur in the united states might be a risk-seeking um HBS grad, Harvard Business School grad, a, an entrepreneur in Latin America looks more like somebody who might have dropped out of high school to support their family financially or never went to college, um, who might just be in the business and tradition of family entrepreneurship, um, like we see with a lot of American businesses. So these are, these are people that um, generally doing out of necessity, not out of innovation or risk-taking. It's really an easy, fast way of um, establishing a stream of income for these people. And I, so I, through Tenoli, I was fortunate enough to be able to do um, work with Tenoli to inter, um, to ask a series of five interview questions to, I believe, five or six small business owners. Mm-hmm. And what they told me is that they loved what they 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 do. It's really part of who they are and part of their lives. Um, but the primary reason they're getting into this is out of the financial necessity or out of the tradition of it, which is hard to break because the job flexibility, vocational retraining, career advising support is not developed in, in existence to help transition this workforce to another line of work fast enough to compensate for the, the rate of extinction that these companies are facing due to the presence of Walmart and 7-Eleven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, too bad. And, um, you know, I, I, uh, I, I just found it surprising, like, you know, even though you're, you're saying that the uh, financial access to financial resources, such as bank accounts and uh, small loans that the average Mexican you know, citizen has is, Know, significantly lower than the United States. I just uh, was surprised that so many people would start these small businesses as their primary, you know, jobs. Um, and and is it solely because they can just uh, sort of sell at such a small level that they're able to afford, you know, running a business? Sorry, could you repeat that question one more time? So, no, I was just saying, um, like, is it uh, what is the um, like what makes it possible for them to to run these small businesses without the ability to get uh, much financial support? Oh, um, because of the business, because the businesses work on wholesale provision. So all of their, generally, what they sell is 
um, is resold from from buying it from a wholesale provider. Think of them as, I guess, mini supermarkets and little market stores. Oh, okay. yeah. They're not in the business of production. Their low, their fixed costs are actually fairly low. They have oh, consistent variable costs of purchasing the product. Mm-hmm. They don't need production equipment in most cases. I see. So they just need to set up, essentially think of them as setting up a booth or a servicing table, and they buy the products as their revenue comes in. Um, uh, obviously, there's some fixed costs associated with the, the branding and the physical establishment of the, of the micro store. But because their fixed costs are extremely low compared to like a restaurant or somebody in the production business, there's less of a barrier, just like there is in the United States, to companies like this popping up. Um, so if you look at the type of companies, you know, they're, they're all hinged on wholesale partnerships, primarily because there's not access to capital to do anything more. I see. Okay, very interesting. Um, so moving on to more of the logistics of uh, your article, um, what part of writing this piece did you find the most challenging? The most challenging part of writing this piece, I'd say, is um, it was definitely getting access to um, Mexican entrepreneurs and people in Mexico directly. Um, I write for the world section, so I'm used to having to you know, wait a while for responses, try to figure out who to get in touch with. I don't really have a network in Mexico or these other countries I've written about. So I'd say that's the most challenging piece. Mm-hmm. Um, because in as much as a perspective from somebody living in the United States who was born in Latin America or has worked in Latin America is valuable, it's really nice to be able to talk to people on the ground. So the way I work through that is um, Rodrigo Sanchez, who I interviewed, he, he's, the, um, he's one of the co-founders at Sonoli. He was gracious enough to... Um, leverage the on-the-ground team at Sonoli in sending out those interview questions that I mentioned previously. Mm-hmm. So I was able to connect directly with the store owners of the Tienditas, and um, that's kind of how I got around that issue. But getting there was not easy. It took a while, and it took a lot of um, patience on my end, simply because, you know, I'm in, I'm in Cambridge. They're yeah. in Mexico City. It's quite a ways away. It's yeah. not like I can just show up and talk to them, and I can't just do live interviews with them because that would require me flying out there during the school year. Yeah. Um, so I'd say that's that was the most challenging piece of working on this project. Yeah. Uh, and to sort of wrap up and uh, talking about your conclusions of the article as well, you uh, you essentially conclude your article with hope that uh, traditional retailers can modernize to some extent. Um, do you believe that they will truly be able to eventually modernize and compete with larger corporations, or do you think that retraining will be the primary solution? So obviously it's a combination of both, and I make it clear in the article that it's not just one or the other. Um, I talked about this a lot in the business school seminar I took this semester, and I actually faced a lot of pushback from my colleagues in class, my professor, when speaking about this issue. Um, we were talking about if you had $40 million to allocate towards the support of um, some type of incubator or program 
helping businesses in Latin America? Where would you put it towards? And I said, half towards helping develop new industries like tech and um, strengthen the retraining programs towards pre-existing strong industries in the area, and then half towards helping traditional retail businesses deal with the rapid rate of transformation that the economy in which they're situated is undergoing. So my belief and from the research that I was doing and my analysis and the interviews is that a proper conclusion lies in there being harmony between both. It's not one or the other simply because, um, you know, Retraining is a long-term process that's essential. We see the value of it in Western Massachusetts. We see the value of it in the rest of the United States. Mm. Industries change. I acknowledge that. I, I recognize that in the article from the um, from talking with um, the former business executive in Mexico who put a, who had a lot of pushback about this issue. You know, I understand it's a natural evolution. I understand the benefits of the commercialization and modernization of the retail industry in Mexico. However, the pace at which it's happening, whereas in macroeconomic terms of GDP per capita and such, it might look beneficial, it's really cutting out the small guys. It's cutting out the people that lie on the bottom of the income distribution scale, the people that are ignored in those large statistical models of, uh, of big macroeconomic data, and no matter what that data suggests about how the Mexican economy is doing, if those people are cut out in economic inequality, which I mentioned the article is already extremely high, disproportionately high in Mexico, continues to rise, you know, what is, what is, what is that economy growing good for? Who is it good for? What percentage of the population is it really good for and who's left out of that? It's important thing to consider the United States. It's an important thing to consider Mexico. It's an important thing to consider everywhere. So to accommodate for that, alongside retraining efforts to help create flexibility, uh, job flexibility, and reduce frictional unemployment in the region, there needs to be support to ensure that the rate at which these businesses are dying is not outpacing the ability of the economy to adapt. John Maynard Keynes says, quote, you know, we're all dead in the long run. So we have to look at the importance of the short run, the importance of the um, stickiness and inflexibility that creates temporary disequilibria in an economy. So for Mexico, that looks like this. When you have an exogenous shock like Walmart coming in, you need to provide support for you know, public-private partnerships and other initiatives that are going to help these businesses to be able to adapt and to be able to keep pace with this modernization. Tenoli is rolling out financial transaction technologies. Tenoli is, um, you know, keeping costs low and creating efficiency at scale for these companies, helping bridge the gap between them and Walmart to reduce the rate at which they're dying off. And if we include them in this process of modernization, it doesn't have to be a story of all of the small businesses being wiped out. If you look at the United States, it's not like we don't have small business. We have a very vibrant small business center. Mm -hmm. So when people say, oh, like this happened in the United States, like, you know, consolidation's natural. Well, yes, it is. It's been happening since the Gilded Age of the late 19th century, but it needs to happen at a pace 
that can be sustained by other economic transitions? So for me, the answer is both retraining and helping to retrain people within their pre-existing industry. It's not all about getting them out of their current line of work. It's also about helping them where they're at now, because in the short run, that matters. And that matters for a family in the most granular sense. It matters for them being able to pay for their children to go to school. It matters for them being able to pay their bills, uh, pay their monthly living expenses, uh, get access to food and shelter. So to me, when we look at the macroeconomic perspective, that gets ignored and it's important to consider in the short run, what does this economic transition look like for these small businesses, for these small families, and how can the Mexican government, Mexican private companies like Tenoli best support a proper transition that's beneficial for everyone and not just the people at the top. Great. All right. Well, uh, those are all the questions I have for you today. So, uh, Thanks for coming on. Thanks for uh, writing a great article. Thank you so much for having me, James. It was yeah. a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, of course. While it is receiving far less media coverage than months prior, the Flint water crisis continues to damage Michigan communities. The lack of action has led many to consider this an enormous failure of government institutions such as the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA. I talked with HPR staff member May Wong about what went wrong within the EPA relating to her article, The Engineered Crisis in Flint. Hi, May. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, so to start off, can you just give me a quick summary of your article? Yeah. So my article was called um, The Engineering Crisis or The Engineered Crisis in Flint. Um, and it's sort of about the uh, political dimensions of the Flint crisis and the crisis management around Flint. Um, and the, the main part of the article is fo- it focuses on um, the two different approaches that some researchers and environmental activists have um, in approaching crises like Flint. So there's um, a professor from Virginia Tech, Mark Edwards, um, who is in charge of a lot of the um, like non-governmental research sort of whistleblowing part. And then there is a, um, Yana Lembrinadu, who is uh, sort of a grassroots activist, environmental activist, and they have competing ideas of what um, environmental activism should look like. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, of course, this is a pretty you know hot button issue right now, but is there anything in particular that inspired you to write this article? Yeah, so I've always been sort of interested in environmental stuff. Back in high school, I did a lot of um, not a lot of, but I did some environmental science research, especially in water. Um, not particular. So Flint, the Flint crisis was um, a lead in water crisis, um, uh, and my research was not on that. But I've, I've since continued to be interested in um, the political dimension of um, environmental policy, and so that's what initially drew me to writing the article. Um, and then in the process of writing the article, I was originally going to take sort of a more um more kind of from the EPA perspective of how how the Flint crisis developed and how it was handled um but then in reaching out to uh, professor Edwards and Yana and Bernadou, um it became clear that there's a very um heated divide on how um out like outside of government agencies what the responsibility of scientists and what the responsibility of citizens are um so i ended up focusing more on that Mm-hmm. Right. 
Yeah, you uh, you talk about in the article uh, how decision making by institutions can be adversely affected by these institutions valuing sort of the agency policies over public welfare. Um, and what sorts of agency policies would get in the way of taking effective measures to solve these crises? Because you know, normally I think of the values as you know just helping the public. Yeah, that's what you know we think of the Environmental Protect- Protection Agency being is you know supposed to protect the environment. Um, and for I think for Professor Edwards, the way he sees it is that um, basically within the EPA, which is already sort of it's an agency that's under attack a lot, but even within the EPA. They're just trying to survive, so they have what he calls perverse incentives. Um, so there's like like a a perverse rewards system where you don't uh, you don't try to tell the truth all the time. You're just trying to survive, and you get um, grant funding. And so that's sort of the larger structural problem that he sees, um, and that goes into why there's not more whistleblowing from within the EPA because they're always just they're fired or they're removed or they're not even hired if they're going to be sort of a loose cannon. Um, and then for Yana Lambrinadu, it's more of a question of who controls the conversation. Um, so she took issue with the handling of the Flint crisis um, because it it basically, the, the control of the crisis moved from um, like irresponsible government um, into irresponsible government and irresponsible experts and it moved into experts who might have been more responsible but still ultimately experts who um controlled rather than incorporated and collaborated with um like the citizens on the ground uh, and moving on uh from that so um where you also mentioned the article that you know s- some of the scientists think uh edwards was uh in support of saying litigation is a way that environmental issues can be addressed if the administration is very invested in such initiatives. But do you believe that we should count on the administration to take action on these issues? Yeah, so I think that was in speaking with um, Professor Moorcroft, who's Mm. the head tutor here at Harvard um, for the Environmental Science and Public Policy Concentration. Um, And he basically said that in the Obama era, uh, the way that they moved forward on any environmental stuff was through litigation. And I think that's, it's, so, so that was, I think, in the Obama era, that was driven by the the like sitting president, um, and the and his administration, and that's of course different now, um, mm. in part because we have a EPA in shambles. Um, but I think we still see that the litigation aspect, because I think just this week, uh, there are several states. Um, so the Trump administration tried to roll back, I think, fuel efficiency standards uh, that were put in place by the Obama administration. And just this week, I think several states um, banded together and are suing uh, suing against that. Um, so I think, I think Professor Moorcroft is right in that the way that environmental policy today probably moves forward um, with litigation, but that might be sort of who starts the litigation might be flipped political climate gotcha yeah um so and then so leading back to what the you know the main issue you talk about in the article this divide between expert directed approaches and sort of community-led approaches um what do you think the balance should be between expert opinions and the empowerment of local communities oh boy um i i i one thing that professor edward said was that um in terms of in terms of science 
there is a there is a sort of a standard of objectivity, um, and that kind of has to be controlled by people who know things um, and the experts. Um, that being said, I think um, Yanalim Brinadu has a point that often these experts uh, are they you, these experts not that they can't be trusted, but that um, they might not have uh, everybody's best interests in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then when you have to trust the experts to carry things out, uh, it gets dicey. Um, and I think the way forward might be something that I think they, um, so Professor Edwards and Lambrinidou used to um, collaborate on uh, teaching a course called Ethics and Engineering. And since they've come to this sort of ideological divide, they've I think they've stopped teaching it. But I think it might be a matter of um, educating the experts on what exactly are some some compromise between the two, uh, which is educating who will be experts or who are the experts on what um, what are ethical, moral, and um, sensitive ways of uh, being experts, um, which is all which is often missing from I think a science education. Like purely, if you're take, if you're following an engineering um, degree, you're not necessarily going to get courses on what it means to be an engineer in society. Um, so probably at least a shift in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in writing this article, what would you say were your uh, biggest challenges? Um, getting people to talk is kind yeah. of hard. Uh, the environment yeah. is uh, a contentious issue. And um, the, let's see, so Professor Edwards and Lambrinidou were very willing to talk, probably because they were used to being in the public face of these sort of things. But um, I reached out to the EPA regional director in Michigan, or at the time of the Flint crisis, who has um, who was rather uh, ungraciously removed um, for for her handling of the crisis, um, and of course received no comment, which is uh, not surprising because even though even though they're not necessarily um, even though some people would cast the EPA as being totally responsible for this, it's also hard to be in the position of, I, I would imagine, being any, some, any kind of EPA administrator, um, because you do have to balance sort of survival, but also doing what the agency is supposed to do. Um, so, yeah, getting people who are willing to talk about something that is, in fact, still uh, in the process of being healed. Um, yeah, that was one hard part. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sort of a, to wrap up here and to look for the, to the future, um, do you have hope that this Flint crisis will be solved in a reasonable time frame, and then and in the future that institutions may be able to amend their their ways to take effective action? Yeah, I don't. I feel like it's been, so. What is it? It's been like four years almost now. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah. that's already an unreasonable time that's frame. And then like, yeah. there's going to be at least another two years before. Uh, it's quote unquote fully resolved, and of course you have questions of what does fully resolved mean. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know about Flint. I don't know if that's hopeful. Um, I one would hope that uh, like the EPA will learn from this, but um, again, the EPA is in a tough position um, currently. And sorry, what was the second half of the question? Uh, it was just about the um the like for the future can those do to amend their approach basically to these issues. Yeah, um yeah, I'm not sure if 
large institutions will ever become totally uh, unreprehensible. Um, and I think that's what the role of the public is, is, is which is to hold the government and any of these agencies responsible for what they're doing. So the, even even though there's this very strong ideological divide, I think that's exactly what needs to be going on. Um, so that in the best case scenario, the government is acknowledging this debate and hopefully making small incremental changes. Um, yeah. Great. All right. Uh, yeah, thanks for discussing your article and uh, thanks for coming on. Sure. Many large cities around the world face similar problems, including traffic congestion, high rates of carbon emissions, and increased noise pollution. I sat down with the HPR Senior World Section Editor Alicia Zhang to discuss an urban planning innovation that could help to abate all three of these issues from her article, New Designs on the Block. Hi, Alicia. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, for sure. Happy to be here. Yeah, so to start off, can you just uh, sort of give me a quick summary of your article? Yeah, so my article is about the new Superblock initiative in Barcelona, Spain, and besides that, just kind of a wider idea of sustainable urban planning. So recently, in the past couple of years, because Barcelona has been suffering from a lot of pollution and concerns about overcrowding and like green space, they've been creating these Superblocks, which are basically nine-block large areas that ban car traffic inside. So they're trying to kind of, I think their logo is to reclaim the space for the city and to provide a lot of environmental benefits for the citizens. Great. And uh, what is it that got you interested in this topic of superblocks? I've always kind of been interested in sustainable design. And uh, especially recently uh, moving to college and moving from a suburb to a city, I'm really interested in how you kind of preserve that type of green space and preserve like a certain way of living even within a really crowded city like Barcelona. So I thought that was just really interesting. Um, and there's been a lot of new initiatives for sustainable design, not just in Spain, but kind of all across the world. So I thought this would be a unique one to explore. Yeah, no, it's a definitely a very interesting topic. Um, getting into more of the superblocks and what you discussed in the article, like you mentioned that many of those opposed to these superblocks kind of think that they'll have a negative effect on local businesses probably because they think that people won't be able to drive up to them or something like that. And did you come across any evidence when you were researching for this article that would support that claim? Yeah, I'm not sure if there's any direct empirical evidence, but mostly just from an anecdotal standpoint, there were a lot of business owners from like blocks that had recently been blocked off that were saying they were having trouble maintaining their consumer base because people would not be able to find them or have a little bit more trouble parking. I don't think it's quite widespread enough that we can make like generalized claims about it yet. Um, but there's definitely immediate impacts. The other thing is though, that after a brief, like a few months period of time when the city's able to adjust, then I think most business owners are quite happy with the super block and they don't really find that to be an issue anymore. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And, uh, so moving on to sort of more of the benefits, um, you know, you were saying that, Superblocks really could reduce traffic and air pollution within cities, but um, I feel like that would need to be in tandem with other uh, sort of initiatives as well. So what other strategies do you think would need to be employed uh, along with Superblocks to really reduce traffic and air pollution? Yeah, for sure. They're, they're definitely on a smaller scale, so 
reducing the amount of traffic and air pollution that Barcelona wants to do is going to be difficult if they're just implementing them, superblocks that is. So I think in general, um, talking to a lot of the politicians that are in charge of this initiative, the sense that I get is they're trying to combine this with a lot of other initiatives that will both make superblocks easier and help achieve their goals. So things like drastically expanding the amount of bike lanes that are in Barcelona to encourage people to bike or walk to work instead of driving, or even just utilizing the extra space that they have from superblocks to plant trees or you know community gardens and things like that. But no, you're definitely right. There has to be a lot of action that Barcelona needs to take if they really want to reduce air pollution and traffic and everything else by that much. Yeah. Um, and I mean, obviously, so those are the sort of the projected benefits as well. And, you know, looking at these benefits you're talking about in the article, it just seemed like there should be a lot more support and press for this idea, like in big cities. And uh, why is it that there hasn't been as much coverage for this, you know, sort of idea? I think it's because it's relatively small. I mean, it's only been implemented in a couple of neighborhoods. Those neighborhoods are, in nature, nine blocks large each. So they are not quite widespread enough to be getting a lot of international coverage, at least from us in America. Maybe it's a little bit more well-known in Spain. But um, I, I just think it's kind of a new concept that hasn't really been getting a lot of um, press coverage. But And it's also because it's kind of difficult to implement compared to a lot of other initiatives. So a lot of other sustainable design ideas have been, you know, like just initiatives that help encourage people to walk or bike and stuff like that. And this takes a little bit more effort from a political scale. So it might not be something that a lot of cities around the world have the political capital to undertake. That might be another reason why it's not becoming more widespread. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And going on with the role of the local governments and like, do you think that all these sort of positive changes, like, you know, sort of more green areas within these super blocks and stuff like that will come about naturally? Or do you really expect local governments having to dictate how to best utilize the new spaces? I definitely think there'll be a lot of pressure put on local governments that might not necessarily be of their own making. It might be more of a community driven effort when, you know, there's been a lot of um, for example, I was talking to somebody who leads a group called Transportation Alternatives, which is like a community-driven effort to have alternatives to driving in New York City. So those people are definitely going to be more vocal in the future. But I think that in the end, the pressure is going to be on the local governments to enact those changes. Because regardless of what the people want, if you want to like change the infrastructure of any city, the government needs to be involved in that and they need to take a lot of responsibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, yeah, you opened the article talking about uh, cars, we just mentioned, and you know, do you do you foresee automobile and energy industries sort of resisting these types of changes to cities um, because of how it may affect their their revenue and their their base of uh, consumers? I I'm not sure about that because on one hand, like you're definitely right, it is going to you know, decrease, if things like this are successful, decrease the number of people who are relying on automobiles for transportation. But on the other hand, I think it's been kind of a movement recently in even the automobile business or the oil industry to be pushing for sustainable development. So I think a response would less be direct pushback from maybe the automobile industry on initiatives like this to change infrastructure, and maybe more of an adaptation. Will those start advocating for you know, like hybrid vehicles or electric vehicles 
and say that, oh, like these are also going to reduce air pollution, you can still drive and will have environmental benefits if you switch to this type of car. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, well, sort of this, uh, you know, looking for the future, like, do you think that um, a da- potential downside of these super blocks may be that these large international cities will become like you know, more similar perhaps in their layout and kind of culture? I'm not sure if that would be true, and if so, if it would be a downside. Mm. I think that having a lot more walkable cities doesn't necessarily mean that they'll be more similar in culture, kind of in the sense that having cities with a lot of cars doesn't necessarily mean that they're really similar in culture. Mm -hmm. But I think that even if they become more homogenous, it'll probably be a change for the better rather than for the worse, because... You know, if if this means that more cities around the world are going to have less traffic and have less pollution, I think that's definitely a net benefit, even if you want to say that you lose some culture, which I'm not really sure that I agree with, because I think that a lot of the reason why Barcelona is trying to push for these superblocks is to actually help boost culture and have people interact with each other more than you would if you are in a car, because if you're walking around, then you feel more part of the neighborhood and more part of the local culture than you would be if you were driving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and just sort of wrapping up and building up that last point, like for all these people who, you know, are resisting this change, mostly due to like sort of just the alteration of their normal lifestyle, what would, what would be your number one like selling point if you were going to try to sell them on this idea of switching their neighborhood around to create a super block? Honestly, I think a huge selling point is a decrease of air pollution and sound pollution, right? One of the statistics that Barcelona really falls back upon when they try to push for this is that there's, I think, over 30,000 premature deaths every year because of the poor air quality. And I think if you just kind of say like, yes, it's a problem, it's hard for you to stop driving, but the trade-off is you drive a little bit less, you walk a little bit farther, but your air is much cleaner, you have a lot less noise, and the environment is a lot healthier for you. And I think a lot of people will buy that argument. Great. All right. Well, uh, that's all the questions I have for you uh, today. So um, thanks for coming on and uh, talking about your article. Yeah, thank you so much. It's great to talk to you. This has been an episode of HPR Talk. If you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to like us or share on Facebook and Twitter. If you would like to read the articles discussed in this podcast or other fantastic pieces, visit www.harvardpolitics.com.